0: A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. The Gospel of the Lord. When you pray, pray like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you. I got out of the car in a huff and shut the door without a goodbye or a thank you. Emily describes her life in high school as one of anger and resentment and insecurity with her anger most often directed toward her dad. In exasperation, her parents prayed for her that God would do something in her heart, but, but they were absolutely powerless before the heart of a teenager. Emily explains, every Thursday morning during high school I had jazz band practice. One of these mornings I was running late. I had to be out of the house by 7.15 and the clock read 7.21 and my dad was sitting in the car waiting for me and so I grabbed my mascara and I ran out the door swinging my backpack onto my shoulder and I sat in the front seat. I complained the whole way there saying that I didn't want to be in band even though it was my idea. I flipped down the cover of the mirror on the visor in order to put on my mascara but the, the flap kept popping back up and it popped up again and popped up again and so I couldn't see the mirror so I pushed it down and it snapped. My dad began to talk to me about my attitude. As we pulled up to the two glass doors at school, I got out of the car in a huff. I shut the door without a goodbye or a thank you. And every day was like this the rage constantly below the surface waiting to erupt. The lack of interest in God. The coldness. The anger toward her family and her father in particular. This was about way more than mascara. And For a parent, watching your child filled with rage, watching your child have no interest in God, it's the worst nightmare you can have. It can feel uh, like A cloud of death looming over you, over your loved ones, a a shadowy valley of insecurity. King David, the Jewish king, who wrote many of the Psalms in our Psalter, he knew this loss uh, and and many others. And in the midst of that, we're going to read about how he would cling to the one thing he knew he had to rely on. He models for us what it means to pray, give us this day our daily bread, like Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. It's a longing that's captured in the 23rd Psalm. I'm going to read Psalm 23 for us now. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Forever. By putting this psalm, it's a song, it's a hymn, within. The Psalter, the the hymn book of ancient Israel, what was God doing by saying, this is something I want you coming back to again and again. This is what I want you singing when you gather together in worship. This is what I want you memorizing and training your children. This is what I want you to eat and drink and breathe. I want it to be so a part of your soul that this is your heart's cry. What's God doing? He's saying, I want you to to depend on me through prayer for everything. What does David say? He says, I shall not be in want. Look at what this covers. He says it covers green pastures, which if you're a sheep, that is your daily bread. He says it covers quiet waters, which is your daily drink. He says it's it's the source for the needs of the soul as well as the body. He restores my soul. For spiritual growth, he says, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness. And on the worst day of your life, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says... That the Lord is the one who can grant comfort. Give us this day our daily bread. It's like Jesus' prayer. It's an invitation to bring all of our needs to Him. Uh, the, the plethora of things that are covered within our relationship with God. Um, in his book of praying life, which if you haven't read it, it's it's a good read. If your soul is dry and parched and you don't have much of a prayer life, that's where you want to start. Um, in in Paul Miller's book of praying life, he He says this, he said, I I read an, an otherwise excellent book on prayer in which the author implied that we shouldn't pray for trivial things such as parking places. The author said such requests seem selfish. And when I read this, I couldn't wait to tell my mom, Rose Marie Miller, She was back in Philadelphia for a wedding of one of her 24 grandchildren and she's 82 years old now and works as a missionary in London and after raising five kids on a pastor's salary, she and my dad, uh, went on the mission field to work in the slums of Uganda. And so we met for breakfast and when I told her what this author thought about prayers for parking spaces, she looked incredulous. She cocked her head. She started laughing and she said, how else would you ever find a parking place? When I'm driving with my grandkids in London, they always say, grandma, would you please pray that we find a parking spot? Recently, mom found a letter she'd written from Kampala in December of 1979, not long after Idi Amin had fled the country. And, and, and they were in Uganda living on the eighth floor of a rundown hotel. They were sharing the gospel and doing what they could to help people. Uh, trash collection had completely stopped in the city. So along with a couple Ugandans, they found a trash truck and started sharing God's love as they would pick up people's rubbish for them. Uh, And in this letter, she described her typical day. She had written, Words simply fail to express the almost total chaos of a country after eight brutal years of civil war. When we use the bathroom, if we are fortunate, the toilet will flush. If not, you get a fire hose from the other end of the hall. If you're too late, then you find others may have used it before you. And so you learn to pray for water. If it comes on in the middle of the night, you fill the bathtub so you can wash in the morning. You pass a building that's bombed out. You go through dirty streets praying as you go so that no one will take your wallet. You meet some Asian people in a hotel and they're interested in our weaving project, so they say, we'll help you with the material, but we don't have transportation. So again, all you can do is pray. The temptation to be aware of self and its utter limitations is so strong there are times when I pray, Lord, I can't go through this one more day. This is a woman who prays for parking spots. How else would you find one? Lord, give me green pasture. Lord, give me my daily bread. Give me quiet waters, my daily drink. Restore my soul. Guide me in paths of righteousness. And Lord, when it hurts and the tears are flowing, I pray that you will give me comfort. Jesus is saying bring Everything to him, even parking spots. You say, Greg, praying for parking spots seems really shallow when God himself is the greatest gift of all. Perhaps. But this is about an actual relationship with God. You know, if those of you who are married would turn to your spouse and, and, and you, of course, love them and are attentive to their needs and, and listen to their heart and all of that. But I want you to turn to your spouse and say, Honey, I am your best gift. Don't ask me for anything else. What's wrong? Well, I mean, obviously, they might have different thoughts about how great of a gift you're turned out to be. But, but, but that's not my point. You know, if you love your spouse you're going to want to be engaged in their daily needs. You're going to want to respond thoughtfully and generously to their desires. You're going to want to know their heart. You're going to want them to know your heart. If we separate out our mundane needs like parking spots from our relationship with God, then what we've functionally done is walled off our entire life from the kingdom of God. It's an over-spiritualizing attitude toward prayer which, which has disastrous consequences. Because God wants you to depend on him in prayer for everything. Even the things you think you've got covered. See, this kind of prayer, it highlights our weakness, which is exactly where our Savior wants us to start. You know, I I worry about our relative affluence compared to any culture prior to this century. Uh, I worry that it makes us blind to our weakness because we think we can cover so much of life ourselves without God. And it prevents us from looking to him for everything. It can be like, uh, you know, when Bart Simpson prayed at the dinner table. You know, God, we paid for all this food ourselves, so thanks for nothing. No amount of money could buy the food if it didn't exist. Uh, That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't know his need. You have to recognize your dependence on God. Uh, Jesus said we have to become like a little child completely dependent on a parent for everything and that means giving up control It's no longer making my plans and asking God to bless my agenda But rather surrendering my agenda to my Savior and working through my agenda with him in prayer um, You know, there have been some big decisions that I've been wrestling through for the last several years now and uh and just the way i've had to work through those with God, you know it, it wasn't me deciding what I wanted to do and asking God to bless it it 's like no i i 've had to begin asking questions before God God, what do you want me to do with my life what do you What do you want my ministry to look like uh what what, what What will the consequences be? If I go one direction, what will that mean, Lord? If I go a different direction, what will the consequences be there? Lord, I'm not in control of this. You're in control, and I'm dependent on you for my life, for my daily bread, for my ministry, for my mortgage, for my friendships, for my health, and for my very future. But but I want whatever you want, God. I worry if I go in one direction, Lord, that things could go really poorly, but if, if I go in a different direction, that could have consequences too. And and, and, and and Lord, I don't know if those consequences will be worse, and I'm not sure what you have in store for me, Father. I don't know what the story of my life is. I don't know whether my life will be one of, of blessings and victories and big impact or whether my life will be one of sorrow and failure and loss and obscurity. But whatever you want, Father, that's what I want to do. I just, I just need to know it's from you and So guide me and show me what you want and I'll follow your steps, Lord, whatever the consequences, but I need your provision, Father. Take care of me. Take care of my sheep. Protect them, Lord Jesus. Give me your wisdom and set captives free by your gospel. Friends, can you hear the dependence in that kind of praying? The the, the not having all the answers, the channeling the anxiety to God in prayer, bringing my weakness to my Father, keenly aware that I don't have the resources. I can't make it work i can't pull it off and then i get a whole bunch of other people praying for me as well and and speaking into these questions and offering their perspectives and i keep asking god and and waiting for him and and trusting him with whatever results may come and when i pray like that when i submit questions to god in prayer what i'm giving up is control what i'm giving up is my independence as a man But what I'm gaining is a relationship with my Heavenly Father. The work of God in the hearts of people I love. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. And it highlights my weakness, which is exactly where Jesus wants me to be. Miller says, power in prayer comes from being in touch with your weakness To teach us how to pray, Jesus told stories of weak people who knew they couldn't do life on their own. The persistent widow and the friend at midnight get access, not because they're strong, but because they are desperate. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. If you're going to enter this divine dance, we call prayer You have to surrender your desire to be in control, to to figure out how prayer works. You've got to let God take the lead. You have to learn to, to trust your life with him moment by moment. Then God, as he delights in you and you delight in him, not only with the gift of God himself, but also with parking places. It was at this very point of weakness that Sinclair Ferguson speaks about his own Lifelong love-hate relationship with the 23rd Psalm. He says this, he writes, It was many years before I could say I love Psalm 23. I can still see the cover of my child's storybook version. There stands David, ruby cheeks and curly hair, shepherd's crook behind him, spotless, shiny sheep nearby. He was the model child. Everything I was not. This perfect boy condemned me from the page of my children's book on Psalm 23. He continues, It took me more than 20 years and some major sorrows before the key turned in the lock because that boy did not write Psalm 23. The David of Psalm 23 needed his soul to be restored in verse 3. He had visited the valley of the shadow of death. He had faced evil, verse 4, and he had enemies in verse 5. The prayer of David is a prayer of a man who has been bruised and broken and felt sorrow and tears and watched things taken from him and watched enemies surround him and, and, and a man who has known that he cannot provide for himself, that he is utterly dependent. He has learned his weakness through the suffering and pain and sorrows of this life. God is saying, I want you to depend on me in prayer for everything. And for this to happen, you have to learn your dependence. You have to learn your desperation. You have to give up your own control and submit everything to him. And in this dependence, there is one emotion that is a very troubling emotion, but is the key that will help you learn to have a praying life it's one emotion that plays a massively outsized role even in the bible's teaching on learning to pray and that emotion friends is the emotion that we call anxiety recognize your anxieties because they are the father's invitation into relationship with him david is walking through a very anxious place. He talks about his enemies. He talks about the valley of the shadow of death. That's not the same thing as the valley of death. valley of death would be when you're facing your final moments. Uh, But the shadow of death, if you can think of what it's like when you're in something's shadow, it means that thing is looming over you. It is so close. It is getting ready to pounce. It is going to grab you and tear you to pieces because it's towering over you and you you are in its shadow. And, And that's what he's saying, that death is crouching there, ready to take him, surrounding him from every angle. It's a place of incredible human insecurity and uncertainty and anxiety. What are you anxious about? What is it that wakes you up in the middle of the night? What is it that creates a low-level dread in the pit of your stomach somewhere below the ribcage? What is it that makes you get sweaty palms? What is it that makes you keep checking your phone again and again and again? Whatever that is, that's where God is calling you into a life of intimacy with Him, of praying, because those anxieties are specifically the point at which He wants us to reconnect with Him. You see, uh, when we aren't praying, that looks like just uncontrolled anxiety. Instead of connecting with God, our spirits are flying around like severed power lines, as one author says, destroying everything they touch. But Because anxiety wants to be in charge, wants to be in control, wants to get results, but cannot do that. Because you are not sovereign. You are not God. You do not control a future. You do not control your friends, your family, your loved ones, your boss, your neighbor. The tenure board you have no power over these things. But that anxiety is a prayer, is a call to prayer to look to the one who does have power over the future, the one who does have power over your friends, over your family, over your coworkers, the one who can change the heart, who can take the dead person and make them alive, the one who who, who is the invisible hand in history, directing all things according to a purpose. And so anxiety is an invitation. To not fear, but to process that anxiety with God. It's what the connection Paul makes in Philippians 4 when he says, don't be anxious about everything, but in everything, in everything, even parking spots, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The anxiety is an invitation. Me, before preaching, my most common... Uh, prayer the day before I'm preaching and the morning I'm preaching as I'm reviewing my notes and realizing that it's not really moving anything inside of me, in my prayer is, is God, this sermon is doing absolutely nothing inside of me right now. It's your church, Lord. It's not my church. These are your sheep, not mine. If you want them to feast, you're going to have to bring them some good pasture, Lord Jesus Christ, because I cannot do this. I cannot preach this one, Lord. You have to come by your Holy Spirit to awaken the dead and give your word power. It's my desperation crying out to God because I can't make anything happen. All I can do is proclaim Christ and trust Him and cry out to Him. It's the call of God to prayer. And that's what you were made for, friends. You know, He talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. When you're praying, you're connecting with something that's so deep in your psyche, so much of what you were made for. It's something so natural and so right if we can strip away the busyness and the apps and the noise and the clutter and and take the anxiety to our Lord, he will hear, he will listen. One author talks about praying, uh, how praying for everything intersects with marriage. Um, He writes this, he says, people will rarely ask God for their spouse to become more like Jesus. Let's say your spouse is critical of you. When you try to talk to them about it, What do they say? Well, I wouldn't be so critical of you were it not for you having so many problems. So by raising the issue, you just got more criticism, so your heart shuts down. You stop caring. They are who they are. You move on with your life. You flip on the television. You pull out your phone, and without realizing it, you've become cynical about the possibility of real change. A childlike spirit seems naive. Uh, You know, the low-level evil wears you down. To engage God in prayer about your spouse's attitude feels like opening up an old wound. Just telling this to God is frustrating because it feels so hopeless. The spiritual version of banging your head against a wall, it's easier just not even to think about it. And mixed with that frustration then is guilt because some of what your spouse says is probably true. Maybe you don't know where their sin begins and and yours ends. You, You hesitate to pray because you've been told you shouldn't try to control your spouse, and you shouldn't, but the point of prayer is shifting control from yourself to God. So where do you begin? Like a child, you ask God for what you want. It might help to write it down, write down your prayer, share it with God, but start praying that God would do something in your spouse every day, inviting God to work in your own heart also. Parents, do you do this for your children? Do you do this for your grandchildren? Do you do this even for your friends? It's your most important ministry to other people. It's the baptismal vow to pray with and for your children. You know, until you become convinced that you absolutely cannot change your child's heart, you will not begin to really pray for your children. But when God helps you capture the reality of your helplessness and weakness when you become desperate and you realize you're at the end of your own ability, friends, that's when faith wakens up. That's when you're going to start praying for your kids and that's when you're going to begin to see God really moving. One dad talks about a time when he was on a camping trip with his kids, and it was a complete disaster. Mom wasn't there. Kids were out of control. He saw not just their disobedience, but their downright cruelty to one another, how they were trying to injure one another, and he saw his own anger flaring up and barking orders, and and, and, and he finally got to a point toward the end of the trip when he had a moment and the kids were asleep, and he realized for the first time, he says, for the first time in my life, I saw two things clearly. One, our family was headed for ruin." And two, I was powerless to stop it. And so I prayed with some desperation. God, you have got to save our family. We are headed for trouble and we need Jesus. He says, I was surprised with how insistent my prayer was. But when I finished, I knew something had happened in the heavenlies. And over the next several years, God broke him of his anger and his pride and his need for control. And God began working faith and love in the hearts of his children. How can you pray like this? Well, you have to know you're not alone. Do you notice what happens when you take the shepherd out of the psalm? We've got a slide. I don't know if you can see it. But when you actually take the shepherd and all that he does out of, out of Psalm 23, I'll read you what's left. My, I shall be in want. Me, me, my soul, me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear evil. Me, me, me in the presence of my enemies. My head, my cup, me all the days of my life. It's terrible. But friends, if you have Jesus, you have a good shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you, that's good for that. Uh, everyone has to walk through this valley. You know, our, our unbelief, We'll focus on the darkness. But, but David as a child of God is focused on this shepherd. You know, hear his heart here. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes. He leads. He restores. He guides me. You are with me. You comfort me. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is very personal. So different from other ancient religious literature. You know, my shepherd, me, my soul, with me, comforts me, before me, my head, my cup, love will follow me. You know, there's nothing like this in religious literature. You know, no ancient person ever wanted to get close to their gods. You know, they wanted blessings from their gods. So they'd, say they'd make offerings as a sort of quid pro quo in order to secure blessings. But but nobody wanted to be intimate with a god in the ancient world. Nobody wanted to get close to Poseidon. Nobody wanted to cuddle with Asherah. Nobody wanted to to, to get tight with Tiamat. You know, these these, these words, uh, me and my ring, thirteen times through this psalm. Uh, a God who is. Glorious in holiness and fearful in praises and working wonders also cares about you personally, individually, me. God is interested in me. And that changes everything because you have a good shepherd. John Ortberg shares a story of uh, of a time when he was out surfing. He says there was... No one else in the water. Uh, there was a huge guy on the beach practicing martial arts. And, and after I'd been out in the water a little while with my surfboard, this tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere in the ocean far from the beach. I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. And he pulled his little board right up next to mine. And he was so small, he hardly needed a board. He could have stood up in the ocean on a Frisbee. But, but he told me his name was Shane. And he asked me how long I'd been surfing. And so I then asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years, he said. How old are you, Shane? Eight. And he said, what I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful. You meet a lot of nice people out here. So I talked to him a little longer, and then I asked him, Shane, can I ask, um, how did you get here? "Oh, my dad brought me, he said, and then he turned around and waved at the nearly empty beach, and Goliath, doing martial arts, waved back, Hi, son! And then I knew, I understood, why Shane was so at home in the ocean. It wasn't his size, it wasn't his skill, It was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching him. His father was always there with him. His father was really, really, really big. And Shane wasn't really alone at all. And neither, friends, are you. If you have Jesus, you have a good shepherd, really, really big, right on the beach, keeping watch over you night and day through the valley of the shadow of death. I am with you. That means total access. Notice David's confidence that he had permanent access to God. Uh, you, he says, you are with me. I will dwell in your house forever. This is the access that Jesus died to secure for us, uniting our prayers to him in mystical union. You know, if you can imagine your prayer as, as a poorly dressed beggar that reeks of alcohol and body odor, You're, you've become your prayer and you're stumbling toward the palace of the great king and you shuffle toward the barred gate and the guards sniffing and recoil because they smell you 30 feet out. Your smell has preceded you. You look awful. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. And your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word as they recoil. Jesus. I come in the name of Jesus. Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention. They bow low before you, in front of you. Lights come on. The doors fling open and you're ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the throne room of the great king who comes running to you and wraps his arms around you. Friends, if you have Jesus, if you were in covenant with God, if you were in relationship with him, because of what Jesus did as your good shepherd, you have access to dwell in the house of the lord forever jesus grants you that he's your good shepherd you know in david's psalm the lord is a shepherd who tends his sheep at his own expense the shepherd has to fight every predator the shepherd has to feed the sheep out of his own storehouse he fights off uh, enemies and, and pays whatever price to defend and to rescue his lambs to be a shepherd is to carry that burden to be a shepherd is to be responsible and to have to pay the price of taking care of the sheep Ferguson says this, he says, Jesus must also have read Psalm 23 with a deep sense of burden. He knew that ultimately he himself was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What Jacob and David saw only dimly, Jesus saw clearly, the shepherd must suffer to protect his sheep. As the good shepherd, Jesus could take the place of his sheep and be led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. For them he would be smitten in Zechariah and in Matthew. He would give everything of himself to provide everything for us. Jesus is the one who walked through the valley of the shadow of death and he rose again to lead the rest of us safely home. He's saying, I want you to depend on me for everything. Depend on me in prayer for your daily bread. Channel all that anxiety toward me. Don't worry about getting your prayers right. Don't worry about using religious language. Just process it with me. And I will hear you. In the heavenlies, there will be movement because you are not alone And as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, Jesus, am with you. My goodness and my love will follow you and you will dwell in the house of my God forever. Back to Emily, our teenager. Emily's parents had spent five years praying for their daughter Emily when she went off to Guatemala on a mission trip. She was really in absolutely no spiritual condition to go on a mission trip, but her parents... We're not about to say no, but it meant that she would be even further from their reach, beyond their ability to try to speak God's grace into her bitter and angry life. After her return, she headed right off to college, and it was from there that Emily asked her dad to edit a paper that she wrote reflecting on her experience in high school, and this is what he read. I could try to justify my ways, but the real issue was my heart, I was bitter about my sister. I was bitter about my life. Everybody seemed to receive more attention than me. I was insecure at school. I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the right hair. I was tired of not fitting in. Maybe it was my insecurities that drove me to disrespect my dad by critiquing him and tearing him down day in and day out. But the main reason was that I did not have the love of Jesus inside me. She continues, I decided at the end of my senior year to take a year off between high school and college to work in an orphanage in Guatemala. During that year, God showed me areas of my life where I had put up walls, places where I didn't want God. And one day I was sitting in the guest dining room of the orphanage talking with a volunteer who had come down for a few weeks. I decided to show her pictures of my family. My dad has a blog on a website, and I knew that he had pictures there. And as I scrolled through his past posts, I came upon pictures of me at my junior year prom. And as I read the comments below the pictures written by my dad, I became so overwhelmed with the love of my father. The person next to me must have thought I was crazy as tears streaked down my face. I remembered all the times I yelled at my dad for his loud chewing, the times I told him that he didn't love me the times I would stomp out of a room, not only that year, but throughout most of my teenage years. And as I read the words and saw the pictures, I felt so undeserving of his love with all his attention, all of his patience, all of the gentleness that he showed me. And as I sat at that table, gazing at the computer screen in front of me, my thoughts came to God. How my dad loved me was an example of God's love for me. My thoughts raced to all the times I had ignored God in my relationships with other people, in sports, in music, all these areas of my life. When times were good, I ignored God. And when times were hard, I blamed God. But nothing that I did separated me from the love of Jesus Christ. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I, she writes, completely undeserving, received the greatest gift of all, eternal life, because of God's love and his grace on me. I have the love of a father. My earthly father showed me through a simple web page that it isn't what I do that makes him love me. He loves me because I'm his daughter. My disrespect didn't push his love away from me. For me, this was a small picture of the love that my heavenly father has for me. I will never fully comprehend how I can be loved so much, but when my heart is often ugly and unlovable, it is grace that is so amazing. Let's pray. Father, our God, we give you thanks for the love that you have given us in Jesus, for giving us a shepherd, for being our shepherd, a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Thank you, Father, for your inordinate love and affection and your self-sacrificial compassion. We give you thanks even as we consecrate these elements to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.